Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Charlie, CIO and co-founder of Seedstars, a platform that educates thousands of tech founders each year and facilitates the scale-up of high-growth companies. Charlie is an investment professional and entrepreneur focused on emerging and developing markets responsible for global seed stage VC investments. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Vaban, a Qatar company, is now making it even easier to launch your angel syndicate with their new product called Atom. Angels provide first checks and are an integral component for founders to launch their businesses. With Atom, angels can band together to launch an SPV for $2,000 plus 2% of the raised capital, which is up to $200,000. There's lower fees, more deals, and more equity ownership in the best tech companies. Check it out at vaban.io forward slash EUVC. And don't forget to mention EUVC. The 15th of December is the day you need to have in mind. EUVC is hosting a webinar with Kathy, David and Andreas. Kathy will show us how to approach PR as an individual and as a firm. Sign up at eu.vc forward slash events. Charlie, welcome to the European VC podcast. It's super fun to have you here. Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me. It's our pleasure, Charlie. We've been talking a bit uh, back and forth. Actually, Constantin introduced us. I had the pleasure of meeting him back in Lisbon, where I'm from. So in the days that we're living right now with Web Summit coming, it's such an exciting place to be. So kudos to Constantin for putting us in touch and uh, super nice to meet him. Charlie, you're leading this thing called Seed Stars. What the hell is that? Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, it's a bit of a behemoth. So I wouldn't say I'm leading the whole thing. I'm leading a, a component of it, which is our global early stage VC fund that we call Seedstars International Ventures. So basically, Seedstars has two components to it. There's what we call Seedstars Community, which basically focuses on founder education. So it's knowledge transfer to emerging market entrepreneurs. And that can be through acceleration programs, incubation programs, and now we just launched a few coding schools as well. And the other side of it is Seedstars Capital, which is early stage VC. And that's the part that I'm focused on. Launched our first fund back in 2017, and we just launched the second fund actually back in June this year. And so just to make sure that I understand and our listeners also understand, you know, the education knowledge transfer side and the capital slash investing side, they coexist and very much do the same, the same thing, so to speak, but using very different tools. So on the one hand, it's knowledge, it's education. On the other side, it's capital. But the geographic focus is the same. The sector focus is the same. Yes or no? Correct. Geographic focus, yes. Sector focus um, depends with the program side or the community side. There have been sector focus that I'm not investing in or we're not investing through the fund. So, you know, there, there has been differences on that. But geography, absolutely, it's 100% emerging markets. And the synergies between the two are hopefully obvious, but basically the Seedstars community acts as a massive deal sourcing pipeline for us and sort of talent incubator, which is obviously one of the key struggles and, and key constraints for any high growth company. And we hope that by working on the human capital side, you know, that pays dividends when we start investing capital and those companies start hiring and looking for team. And you know, some of those people will come through the community. And the other synergy is really on the marketing. So we're both out there in the market. Again, same geographies, emerging market, early stage tech. We're both out there in the ecosystems, you know, doing our work in our own way, as it were. But the synergy is clear. It's all under the Seastars brand. And there's a lot of knowledge and information and especially network 
that is sort of transferable between those two sides of the business. You know, someone who is perhaps mentoring on one side of the business might be an angel investor on the other side, or you know, there's a lot of um, overlap there within the community. You started off by saying, Charlie, which I find interesting, it's a bit of a behemoth, <laughs> <laughs> but you haven't been around for that long. So give us an idea of scale, but also give us an idea of maturity. So we founded Seedstars back in 2013. If you want to go into the history lesson of it, we really started this as a, a global startup competition. So two of the founders, Alizé and Pierre Alain, they basically backpacked 20 emerging markets. And that was where all of this, everything Seedstars was really born from. So they took their bags, they went around for a year, looking what they could find, seeing what startups are out there, running some boot camps, you know, helping again, educate entrepreneurs sourcing deal flow, not for us, because at that stage we didn't have a fund, but sourcing deal flow for the sort of global investor community and the, the global demo day that we did at the end of it all. And that was where it was all born. So we started in 20 countries that sort of grew, I think it was 36, then maybe 54, then it went up to 75. Then it kind of scaled. And I think we reached our peak at around 90 different markets that we were covering. And from there, yeah, it's just sort of evolved as, as time has gone on. So today on the community side, I think there's somewhere around 60, 70 people, different team members running those programs, uh, working on community building, sales and marketing, EIRs, all of that good stuff. And then on the capital side, um, today within my team were nine people, two GPs, four IMs, and then three people on value, com- value creation. So nine to be correct. On community members, Ian, could you put some numbers to that? And also on the fund side, you know, what's the size of the funds you manage and what fund number and so on? Yeah, absolutely. So community is a hard one, I guess, to, to put one number on it. So it depends which layer you're looking at. Um, I think in our CRM today, there's 200,000, 250,000 people that we've interacted with. So, you know, whether that's entrepreneurs, um, whether that's corporates, investors, mentors, you know, that's it's a pretty big network that's been built. I would say then the core components of that, there's about 1,300 active mentors. So that's people who are dedicating their time, you know, volunteering and, and supporting the companies within the community. There's an investor network. I think that's today around a thousand different investors. And then, you know, when you get into the founders, I can tell you from our fund side. So we made 80 investments in the first funds. We've done about 10 from the second fund. So portfolio companies for our fund, it's about 90 so far. The first fund we did was, I would say, a somewhat like a pilot fund. So we call it fund one. Fund one, we made 81 investments. We had uh, just a little under 10 million capital to, to deploy there and started off kind of piloting that in 2017, 18. But really, we, we began focusing on that and running it like a professional fund, I would say, as of 2019. So most of the investments out of that fund were 2019, 2020, 2021. 2022, so June, July this year, we just launched the second fund. That first closed at 20, and the aim is to raise north of 30. 80 investments out of a sub-10 million euro fund? Tell us more. <laughs> that is impressive. We cannot hear that without diving into both. What's the, you know thinking around ownership targets and, and how can you get in with that smaller ticket and still get something that's meaningful? And also, how the hell do you manage 80 investments? How, you know, what's the math behind all this? What's the thinking around portfolio model? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think in fund one, um, we had to do with what we had in terms of capital. Fund two, we're really writing sizable tickets and where we want to be. So we're now writing 150 to 500K tickets. So for that pre-seed seed stage, having a kind of 3 to 5% ownership those ticket sizes are spot on, I would say. In fund one, like I said, we had to deal with the constraints that we had. And I would say we were more out there to prove that we had access to quality deal flow, that we could write that many investments versus, you know, optimizing for ownership in the first fund. So fund one, 80 investments. Fund two, the goal is 100 investments. The reason behind that is, I guess, you know, defined by our investment strategy. So first thing is, you know, based on the data that we've looked at, we're definitely proponents of a diversified fund to increase the probability of a 3x fund versus a highly concentrated fund where you can have you know, both a 10x fund, but a very much a sort of 
less than 2x fund. So we're really optimizing for that, uh, maximizing the probability of, of kind of hitting a 3x fund. Why that's even more important, I would say, in the emerging market context is because we have to deal with macro risks that if you're just doing a US fund, you don't have to think about, you know, okay, there's political instability, but in terms of the FX risk, um, you know, you don't have to think about that. With the emerging market context, you add in some political instability, some, you know, FX devaluation, although UK has kind of, I guess, put emerging markets in good light this year with, I think they're about down 20, 25% on the, <laughs> the last year. But still, you know, it's something we're, we're conscious of. And so the only way of managing that risk is really through diversification. So we don't want to be 100% of the fund in West Africa or 100% of the fund just in Mexico. We want to be spread Mexico, Nigeria, Kenya, Egypt, Indonesia, you know, Philippines, Vietnam, South Asia, so Pakistan, Bangladesh, India. And with that, we think we can diversify a lot of that, that risk away. I would have to ask you, Charlie, to deep dive a bit on that, because that's something that we don't cover a lot in our podcast, because we mostly do European-only focused firms and funds, right? And so I'd love to ask you, as you think about diversification and portfolio construction, specifically on this topic of emerging markets, you know, as you're saying, political instability, uh, currency, and so on, how do you think about your exposure to a particular geo? Is it a function of maturity level of that geo? Do you do like a risk assessment and then that kind of reverse engineers into your kind of portfolio construction model? Or is it more like kind of boilerplate where, no, I don't want to be more than 10% exposed to each geo. So I just, I, I have that kind of as a benchmark. Guide us a bit through that thinking. Yeah. I mean, the starting point was taking each country and looking at various different factors. So whether that is the you know growth rates, population, maturity of the startup ecosystem, you know, how many unicorns there are, how many local players there are in terms of VCs, accelerators, with all of that kind of coming up with an assumption of how many deals we think we can do in those markets. From that assumption of how many deals we can do in the markets, we then defined how many we actually wanted to do based on you know, the strength of our network, plus the sort of sensible diversification targets that we talked about before. So it's a combination of the sort of external and in internal factors. And what it leads to for us is that we have, you know, per region, we have kind of four key regions. So LATAM, Africa, MENA, Asia. Uh, what it turns out is, you know, we want about 30% max in a region and probably 20% minimum in a region. Then I would follow up and ask, how do you then think about your follow-on investment strategy? How much is, is, is saved there? And is there a tipping point where, where a company gets to a size where the risk of the country becomes smaller because then you move headquarters to another country where it's more stable and then blah, blah, blah. How does all that work? Because we're not really used to thinking too much about hedging against country risk might be something that's more on the radar of some countries in Europe these days, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the nice thing with Europe is you, you don't have the currency risk, but yeah, yeah. there's definitely still the, the sort of macro headwinds. And I mean, let's, let's be clear and honest, you know, we're not a macro fund, you know, timing the equity markets and, and you know, playing uh, listed equities and, and fixed income. Um, this is a long-term investment horizon. You know, we've got we're ten-year fund closed end and all the rest, like like all VCs or most VCs at least. So we're not in this to sort of time a market and say, okay, risk on Mexico, risk off Pakistan, or that, no, no, that's not no. our goal. But I think we're, what we're really trying to do here is have um, the sort of marginal gains where we might say, and this is what we we have said, you know, in the next six months. We're cautious on a couple of markets. Um, so, for example, Egypt, Pakistan, we're a little bit more cautious on right now, mainly because they're import-driven countries and you know, there has been some FX volatility in, in Pakistan, especially Egypt also. It's not that we're not going to invest there, but if we had a you know, choice of typically perhaps doing five deals, maybe we want to do three deals for the next six months rather than five and, and wait and see what happens and allocate that capital elsewhere. So I would say the sort of macro component is for us sort of marginal gains versus sort of risk, you know, full risk on, full risk off. Ultimately, the, the companies we back, they all have offshore hold posts. So whether that's Delaware, Singapore, Mauritius, Mauritius less so these days, sometimes UK, you know, United Arab Emirates. So they all have that offshore hold code, typically from as early as pre-seed. 
Um, once in a while, there'll be a local structure and they'll kind of flip it into whole code between precede and C. Yeah. Generally, that's already structured. The way we think about follow-ons is we keep about 30% of the fund. The, the hope is that with recycling, we can get that up to maybe about 40% allocated into to follow-ons. I would probably prefer to do more capital at the sort of first ticket, but I think in, in terms of market expectations, plus just being able to support the companies one step further and also that sort of signaling of being involved in companies a bit longer, I think it is important. So yeah, we're keeping, uh, keeping that 30% there for, for follow-ons. This is the European VC and we're kind of pumping you on what to you probably feels a bit like the abstract or the, the broad level, right? Because we don't know shit about Nigeria. We don't know anything about Western Africa. And neither do we know anything about investing, you know, across so, so many different economies that are at different stages. So so I think it's interesting to hear about how do you think about the world, right? <laughs> or the, the emerging economies. Do, because you talked about, okay, if you if we plan to do five in Pakistan, then maybe we'll only do three because of whatever. Is that how you think about it? That you have these different years and you then allot you know, a number of deals or a number of money to that country or, or part of the world? Or is it more, well, we'll see whatever surfaces as the best yeah. deals and then we do them. Be they all in Mexico? Fine. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously the design and what you desire to have in, in terms of diversification and exposure. And then there's obviously what comes through the pipeline is going to define whether or not you can meet those those targets. So no, it's not like an allocation and we have to deploy it in those markets. It's more of a, an objective. And based on historical data and, and you know where the markets are going, it's not just plucked out of thin air. So it's based on as much data as we can gather and insights we can gather. So there's no reason we shouldn't be able to achieve that. But yeah, you're right. If there are no good deals or if something happens to one of those markets, then that would just mean we would have zero exposure and it would be allocated elsewhere. There are, you know, let's say 12, 15 markets, core markets that we're kind of focused in where the bulk of our investments will go. And it's those usual suspects that I just mentioned which are generally the more mature markets in the emerging market context. So the most mature ecosystems where you have some level of capital continuum, meaning you know there's, there's some local accelerators, incubators, um, maybe company builders, venture studios, a number of local angel, business angel networks, plus local and or regional VCs and then international VCs looking at those markets. So you have a pretty decent capital continuum from pre-seed through the later growth stages. It doesn't, again, mean that we won't do investments in a market that I haven't mentioned. So, you know, we just did a deal in Senegal. But those deals are definitely going to be harder to find and lower in terms of the, the total number of deals that we do in, in the overall portfolio. Yeah, and I guess we're also very aware that there's the capital risk of, will they be able to raise the next round? Can we sustain them alone? Can we bring a syndicate in? That kind of thing. I, I, I imagine yeah. that is partly what the founding team is, but it's also about what can we actually do You know, once this starts needing to get more capital in, can we pull in a network or not? Yeah, I mean, we're never alone. So we're never supporting a company on our own. There's there's generally a pretty healthy cap table. And I guess it resembles you know what you see in the in the EU context. So to precede, we might have four or five names around the table. And then, you know, you add on a few more at the seed stage. So we're never alone in that. But the capital continuum, as you say, it is it is critical in our thought process. And we've seen just how much more complicated that is for a company not in one of those maturing ecosystems versus those that are you know, lucky enough to be there. I'd love to dive deeper on the value add there because I can only imagine with a community as big as yours, it's, it's not the standard model of, okay, you've got a partner and that partner will then help you through some board meetings. <laughs> I imagine you've got a bit more weight behind you. Yeah, so we're pretty serious on the value creation piece. I'm not sure if I would think about this differently if I was in the EU context. I imagine not, but you know, that's not my wheelhouse. So I'll, I'll just comment from our context. And it's also partly due to where we come from. Our history has been in running this community and, and educating entrepreneurs. So we have this pretty embedded knowledge and philosophy around how to help entrepreneurs and how to deliver that value add. And that philosophy has definitely translated into the way we manage the funds. 
we're definitely not just capital. And we really see, see ourselves as having a, a strong value creation component for all portfolio companies. We like to think of it as a sort of T-shaped skill set. If you remember that from, I don't know, the days you were, were back recruiting. Yeah, I loved high school. <laughs> <laughs> Where we're very strong in, in one or two things. And I would say we're as good as or average on, on other things. So the component that we've really focused on is helping companies implement a growth team and a growth methodology. The, the reason being at an early stage, we hopefully are backing companies or, or, or teams that have um, strong technical abilities and hopefully a strong CEO with either you know, the industry knowledge, the, the startup knowledge, um, company building knowledge, whatever that is. But often the growth component is fairly ad hoc. Uh, it's kind of run on the side, someone junior marketing may be handling it or the CEO might be handling. We try and come in and say, okay, let's run growth like you do your tech team. There's a process, there's tools, there's a system behind it. And we try and convey that knowledge and sort of implement that within the first three months of backing a company. The aim being that by the time that's implemented three months later, they start really running with it. They can prove that their growth is sustainable, is scalable, that they have good unit economics, that they know their acquisition channels, you know, retention is solid. And all of that should lead for the next round and make their lives a lot easier. I'm curious because your LP base, I imagine two things. I imagine that you have many who are involved already in, in the C-Stars world and thus coming as, as, you know, almost community LPs or something like that. And then I imagine that you've had a, a really tough time figuring out how the hell do we manage all the sovereign wealth funds and the uh, uh, development banks and that kind of thing that would love <laughs> to back something like this, but they would also love to say, now you can only do Senegal or you can only do <laughs> something like that. I'm, I'm super curious to hear. There's definitely a bit of that. So overall, we're 60% institutional, 40% private in the second funds. Uh, there was a DFI, a couple of large large organizations, a couple of asset managers, wealth managers and the likes, and then a number of sort of family offices and individuals. From those individuals, you're right. I mean, we don't have hundreds of LPs. Fortunately, we only, well, we have less than 20 if you, if you include the GPs. So we don't have a, a huge number of those community members chipping in small tickets, mainly because that's just hard to implement and there are sort of minimum ticket size requirements. But the ones that did come in um, from the individual standpoint generally had known us, worked with us, been mentoring companies, co-investing with us, that kind of thing. So your, your intuition is right. Yeah. And you're fully closed now, right? We are still raising for another, I guess, until June next year. Ah, nice. This is me thinking out loud. So that's the way <laughs> Everyone who's listening in, you know, uh, the European VC is a community-driven project to a large extent. So reach out if you guys think that we should be doing more in the emerging markets. We don't normally do, but I think it could be interesting. Uh, we, you know, Dave and I have been dancing around this for a long time, and Charlie is our bet if we should. But, you know, voice your opinion if we are if we're wrong in, in not doing it. I actually have a question, <laughs> a completely unrelated question, Charlie, which is when I, I wanted to ask this in the beginning and I completely forgot it might sound very relevant, but I'm interested. Why the name Seed Stars? The conversation that happened a long time ago, uh, before I was <laughs> even involved, actually. And really, I mean, it, it, very, it does a very good job of describing what we want to do. We want to help seed the technical, you know, tech stars in emerging markets. So Seed Stars is the, the name that was developed, I guess. Now, but I have another question then, which is more connected to this, because um, we didn't really talk about it too much in this in this chat so far, which is, this model where you have education coexisting with investment, which is not that different from the acceleration kind of 
accelerator models in, in, in VC investing or, or, you know, these different models that are out there. And I'm one that loves to give some shit to those that actually have these weird incentives set up around them. You know, where you have, in some cases, you have these studios that are kind of triple dipping <laughs> into the startup and you don't really understand, like, why the hell does a, a founder want to want to even associate to these, these guys or girls? So I'd love to ask, yeah. how does it work at Seastars? How do you guys think about it? You know, what is the involvement of the, the community yeah. on, on the startups? Are those the same startups, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, it's a great point. So on the community side, 99% of the times it's non-dilutive. I'd say 99% because in the past there were a couple of programs where we did take ownership, but generally speaking, they're non-dilutive. So it's a pure benefit for the entrepreneurs and we're able to sponsor that through the collaboration with corporates, governments, foundation, DFIs and the likes. I'm probably aligned with you or reading between the lines of what you just said, David, where I think some of, the, <laughs> some of those programs can be a bit predatory and we wanted to sort of split the two out where the pure education piece, you know, you're a first-time founder, you've got a lot to learn, maybe you need to meet your co-founder, you, know, you don't really know what you're doing, you don't have a mentor network, all of that doesn't have a big burden of 20% of equity or whatever it might be. On the other hand, within the fund, we believe that the best entrepreneurs have often already matured beyond the stage where they need to go through a program. So we wanted our fund to be and look and feel like a fund where we peg ourselves to the fair valuation of the rounds. We don't take a fixed ownership and we're investing on the same terms, you know, safe convertible notes, straight equity, whatever it might be as, as other VCs. The difference uh, that we talked about before with the value creation piece, we kind of add that in on top of us being a, an early stage VC. We add that in as a component that we think is, is bringing a lot of value add for the companies. But without saying, you know, this is going to cost you flat 10% equity or whatever the number may be. Is there a close connection in terms of the community also being like a core component of your pipeline in the sense that you're only doing deals that go through that? Or are you also doing deals that are completely unrelated to that? Like any VC, you know, get the best deals wherever they come from. The community is clearly a, a bit of a USP and an unfair advantage. And one of the components that allows us to do this global EM strategy. I mean, without it, I think it would be hard to even think about it or consider it. It's often hard to say exactly where a deal comes from because they might have heard about the community. They might, yeah. might or might not have gone through a program. They you know, may come back a few years later. So yeah. it's hard to put a number on it, but at least the numbers we have, the community is, and whatever that might mean, you know, referral from someone in the community, startup who's done one of the programs, alumni from the community, there's different components, but that community does bring in about 30% of our deals that we end up executing. Okay. It's much higher in terms of the number of deals, but then the ones we execute, it's yeah. like 30%. And I think perhaps preempting your next question, the most effective source of deals is still referrals. And whether that's yeah. referrals from the community or outside of the community, those are uh, together the about 50% of deals that we execute. And that's the hard part because it's really hard to make the brand value tangible and that what you just referred as well, the referral kind of where, where, where does it come from? It's very hard to make it tangible. So it's very hard to, to measure as well. Very, very interesting. Charlie, we're running out of time. So Charlie, we always end our episodes with a quick fire round. And that is when I ask you a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Go for it. So first question, and here I'm going to make it really hard on you. I'm going to ask you not to answer saying emerging markets. And the question is what areas, sectors, technologies, verticals, whatever, excite you the most that you find most people around you maybe not that excited about? I think it's hard to be in VC and, and not be uh, excited about something that no one else is excited about. <laughs> Uh, without saying emerging markets, SME SaaS. So I don't think anyone is using that term. Think of it as B2B SaaS, but not for enterprises, but for SMEs, which make up about 40% of GDP in emerging markets. I can use it then, right? And uh, that is something we're seeing, <laughs> seeing a lot of. Really excited by it because this is you know, getting back more to the roots of VC where it's high gross margin businesses yeah. versus a lot of the marketplaces, aggregation plays, you know, low GM businesses that have been more popular in our markets for the last few years. Charlie, second question. Uh, what are your top tips for emerging GPs? 
let's make this one a global one. What are your top tips for them that are out there fundraising? I think my top tip would be to get started. We did this very organically with our first funds. You know, the first year we weren't even raising a fund. We just said, okay, let's start backing some of the companies coming through the community without realizing that we were probably listening to my own advice here of just getting started versus some of the emerging managers that I talk to and, and, and see they've been fundraising for a couple of years and still haven't really got started with investing. And I know that's hard because you don't always have capital, but I think there's other ways of getting involved. It can be advisory shares if you don't have capital, but just proving that you have the access, proving you have the network, refining your pitch and making sure you have something to show from it after a few years. I know this is the quick fire round and sometimes I, I botch it completely and, and I'm going to do this again now. Um, because in the beginning of this episode, you had to kind of, you know, say there's fund one and then there's fund two and fund one we were learning and we were figuring out how to do things and blah, blah, blah. That's the flip side of just get started, right? <laughs> if you could say anything, because you end up having to kind of do with what you have. And that means that you're not executing on the actual thesis that you might actually have as, as your dream thesis. Obviously, with that in mind, you still argue well, just get started. But I'd love to hear your reflections on that. I mean, I think the thesis evolves and ours is forever evolving. And, you know, I would love to hear if that's what you see with other managers. But I think you're constantly learning the markets, you know, the external factors change as well. And you have to adapt to that. Uh, and you just, you know, figure out, always figuring out and asking ourselves, how do we improve? How do we get better? Whether that's on the, the sourcing, you know, the sectors we're focused on, the, the geographic allocation. There's just so many pieces to the investment strategy. I feel like it is going to forever be evolving. And I don't think we would have had the strategy and the thesis that we have for Fund 2 without Fund 1. If it was just pure you know, pen and paper, I think that would have been very hard to get to. The way I think about it personally is it's not a problem that you have grown wiser. But from Fund 1 to Fund 2, it's only a good thing. But you need to be genuine and honest and transparent about it because you can kind of feel when people are explaining something away or like they're, they're, you know, stuff shows up along the way that it was not thesis and for that reason they didn't bring it in or whatever. And if you, if you start feeling that as an LP that's looking in, then it's a bad story, right? So as long as you know, you're a genuine person and you don't think about creating a false narrative around yourself, then for sure you can do it. And the most powerful narrative is that you're a man with high integrity, right? <laughs> that's the best narrative anyone can have. Um, but sometimes you know, all of this be strategic in your communication and blah, 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 kind of mumbo jumbo that we're all teaching each other has people ending up feeling ingenuine when you are on a fundraising call with them. You just cannot say the wrong thing if you are too tactical about what you want to say, right? So either be very, very genuine and, and then talk openly about the things, or you need to be a fucking good salesman that always stays on script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I'm, if people ask the question, I'm fairly open about you know the, the failures, the learnings, the things we're doing differently. And I guess that's a different or two schools of thought, as it were, and you're probably right. You fall into one camp or the other. Yeah. We tend to invest in one of them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I love, I love what you said, Charlie, and we advocated for it ourselves. You know, we're doing it through syndicates, right? Some time ago, it wasn't that easy to do it. And, you know, we're not necessarily the biggest investor in our syndicates, but we are investing in every single one, the amount we are able to muster, right? And, and that is, that means that we have skin in the game. So there's, there's many ways to do it. And we love the hustle mindset to just start it, just start doing some deals and, and with that inform, inform and all. Back to the quickfire round to ask the third and final question, what has been the most counterintuitive learning you've had since you've joined uh, Seedstars? I think the one that shocks most people when I talk to them is the low failure rate that we've had in Fund 1. There aren't many stats on this, but I, there, there's one research on broader African context which sort of validated what we found. So we're modeling for failure rates above 80%, and right now we're at less than 10% failure rate. I think there's going to be more. You know, we're, we're still relatively early in the vintage, so I think that will mature. But right now, it's extremely low. And I think with the emerging market context, 
most people's perception would be that this is going to be way higher. Again, the only stat that I've seen at a regional level was for Africa, and the average failure rate there was about 54%. So again, you know, lower than what people often quote to be 90%. What do you think is the reason? There's probably a couple of points. First one is that when I, you know, when I spoke about our investment thesis and our investment strategy, it's to reduce the business model risk by backing companies or models that have been somewhat proven in other geographies. That could come from a developed market. It could come from a more mature emerging market like India. But oftentimes, we're not backing sort of cutting-edge technology developed and, and rolled out for the first time. We're backing, I guess, business model innovation within the local context that is often a business model that has been proven elsewhere. So I think that is one key component. The second piece I would point to is, is much more on the human level, and I think it comes down to the tenacity of the entrepreneurs. I think people who have grown up in the emerging market context have often had to deal with incredible hardship. Think of friends, I'm sure you have, they've got such a big diaspora, you know, the Lebanese, we haven't invested there, but I think it's a good example of, of people from a market where they've had to deal with hardship their whole lives. So when you tell them, okay, you guys are going to have to, you know, bootstrap another three months because the funding round is, is delayed, they'll just get on and do it. They'll get on and deal with it. And I think that's probably the, the biggest contrast between emerging and developing markets. Yeah. I really enjoyed this, Charlie. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been amazing. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Vauban, a Qatar company, is now making it even easier to launch your angel syndicate with their new product called Atom. Angels provide first checks and are an integral component for founders to launch their businesses. With Atom, angels can band together to launch an SPV for $2,000 plus 2% of the raised capital, which is up to 200,000 US dollars. There's lower fees, more deals, and more equity ownership in the best tech companies. Check it out at vaban.io forward slash EUVC. And don't forget to mention EUVC.